Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? We are back with another installment in our sort of mini-series on real-time games. Two weeks ago, we talked about Five Minute Dungeon and also about one of the classic real-time games, Escape. And what are we talking about this week, Peter? This week, we're going to talk about Magic Maze. And just for those of you keeping track at home, this is episode 20, so we're kind of at a milestone here. Oh, yeah, man. We are. We, we made it. We, we did it. We're successful now. I don't know what we made, but we, we keep making a thing every week. No, it, it's a rule that when you get to 20 episodes, uh, the podcast gods just send tens of thousands of listeners your way. So we're, we're, we made it, man. We're, we're there. Well, we had that anyway. I mean, that, <laughs> that happened well before episode 20. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. <laughs> so uh, Magic Maze is another real-time game, obviously. And uh, Peter, you want to tell them a bit about the theme in this one? So the theme is you are the standard generic fantasy trope. You got a warrior, a dwarf, a mage, and an elf. And they have just gotten beat up in a dungeon and they have all their items taken from them. So now they run to the local mall and they are trying to rob the mall of new weapons and get back out there adventuring again. So it's a fun little twist on generic fantasy. Now, in terms of how you actually play, this is a cooperative real-time game. And uh, you start out on a starting tile, and then you have a pile of tiles you have to explore through. Kind of similar to Escape, which we talked about uh, two weeks ago. And on four of the tiles in the randomly shuffled pile of tiles are stores uh, matching the color and icon of the four heroes. Uh, basically, the stores they have to rob, and they're sort of funny thematically. The dwarf has to rob the axe store, the elf has to rob the, the ranger sort of hunting store. And what you have to do is you have to get each person to be on their store at the same time. So they cannot start the heist, start the robbery until all four of them are in position at their correct store. Once you've done that, then you need to get each person to their matching exit. So each person has an exit they have to exit through as well. And that's how you win the game if you can do that without time running out. Now, the twist on the game is that even though you have these pawns that you're moving around through these uh, square tiles, each player has a set of action tiles that allow them to do actions that nobody else can do. And these include moving in the different directions. So Peter might be able to move people to the top and to the right, and I might be able to move people to the bottom and to the left. But we cannot do the other person's movement. So you and your fellow players are constantly working together to actually move your people around the map. Movement can be as far as you want in a given direction, except you can't hit a wall or uh, pass by another adventure. You have to move out of each other's ways. So that's the most basic action you'll be doing, moving around. Additionally, there are a few other actions. There are some escalators in the mall that are the only way to get from one spot to another, and uh, one player will have the escalator action on one of their tiles. There's the vortex system, which basically teleports someone to a vortex matching their color from wherever they are on the board. It's important to note that the vortex system shuts down once you do the heist, so you can't just teleport right to the exit after you've uh, stolen your items. The final action you'll do, and a very important one, is the search action. 
you have these uh, magnifying glass icons on the edges of tiles, and these are also color-coded to the different heroes. Pretty much everything in the game is color-coded. And if the correct hero is on a magnifying glass, then that player who controls the search action can flip over the top tile of the deck and put it adjacent to the character that's searching. And that's how you reveal the map, how you find the stores, and how you find the exits. The final important thing is the hourglass, which actually determines when you lose. So the hourglass is running throughout the game. And uh, there are spaces on the board that if a character moves to them, you place these little out-of-order tokens over the hourglass symbol on the board to show that you've used it because you can only use it once per game. But then you flip the hourglass. Now, it's important to note you flip it no matter where it is in its sand falling. So generally you want to wait until it's almost out before you flip it. And that's how you buy yourself some more time. The final note I'll make is that uh, there is a communication rule that the only times you can talk are before the game starts, so before you first flip the hourglass, and also every time you use that hourglass action and flip it over, you can also talk freely until you perform an action. Apart from that, the only communication allowed in the game is there's a sort of get-on-with-it giant pawn, and you can pick that up and tap it in front of a player. But besides that, there is supposed to be no communication, although they do relax that rule for the first games as a suggestion. There are a few other rules that get added as you play the game more. Each character has a sort of special thing they can do in the dungeon, like the dwarf is small and can go through special dwarf doors. And there's also a bunch of challenges you can add, but those are the basics. So two quick notes on top of that is you don't actually control any character in this game. All those pawns, if you're the person that moves the pawn left, you move every pawn left. So you don't have your own avatar in the game. And the other point I wanted to make is Mike said you tap that big do something pawn in front of people. I think the rules say you're just supposed to lay it gently in front of them to let them know that it's their turn to do something, but that never ends up happening. Wow, yeah, I, I didn't even realize that. I've, I'm always just slamming that thing down on the table for dear life. <laughs> yes, well, I think the the fact that it is a timed game really adds that sense of pressure, and so it's like, come on, do something, do something, you tap it. But from my experience, that equates to the same thing as when you're playing something like Pictionary and you keep pointing to the same picture you already drew over and over again, they're still not going to see what you're talking about. Sure. All right, so now we're going to get into our actual discussion of the elements of the game. If you have not listened to Co-Opcast before, what we do is we go through the five things we each think are most important about the game, the five aspects or design choices. Each one could be a pro, a con, or somewhere in the middle. And we start with our number five, the least important for us, and we work up to our number one, the thing that is most interesting or unique or compelling or problematic about the game. So, Peter, do you want to start with your number five? Yeah, sure. So my number five is what I just talked about is you don't actually control a character in the game. Again, this is my number five, so it's not that big a deal, but I did feel somewhat disconnected. In every other game, I'm looking to move my pawn around, and in this one, you don't really have an avatar that embodies you, so I don't know really who we are in the game, and I know for some people that is a bigger deal than it is for me, just in general in games. Like, people want to control one avatar, and so for me, I did feel disconnected from the characters. On the positive note, though, I do like that they each have their own special powers, each of the characters, so that's kind of cool, too, and everybody gets to share in on that when they perform actions with that character. 
Yeah, you're right. It's definitely breaking from kind of the dungeon crawl trope there of controlling an avatar. It didn't make my list, but now that you mention it, I think that's kind of an honorable mention. My number five is also a con, but a minor one. From having played the game quite a bit, there does seem to be a fairly clear dominant strategy that is the strategy you want to follow to consistently win the game. It took us a few plays to figure it out and actually took me playing with several groups until one of the groups kind of gelled with the sort of best ideal way to play. I won't say what it is because I think figuring it out is part of kind of the fun of the game. And it's also not a major problem because it is still a challenging thing to do given the time limit and especially when you uh, add on some of the difficulty challenges and extra tiles into the deck as you move along into the game. It's not really a problem. It's not like you're winning the game every time. It's still a very tough uh, skill-based thing to execute. But there are sort of uh, ideal ways to play the game that don't really change much from game to game. Yeah, I'm going to get into this point a little bit more later, but I did compare it to Hanabi in that way, where I think every group, maybe there's not even an ideal way to do it, but every group's going to have their own ideal way of doing it. So I think that is interesting that you find something that works for you, and, and it is a communication issue more than anything. Well, I'm going to disagree with you slightly, and uh, we have not played, I figured out this strategy after playing with you, the games we played. But I think you would be hard-pressed to figure out a better way to consistently win the game. It sort of makes perfect sense once you start doing it. All right. Well, don't tell me then because it might ruin it for me. No, again, I don't think it will. That's why it's my number five. But yes, I will certainly not tell you. So how about your number four, Peter? Yeah, so my number four is clear iconography. And it's funny. This keeps coming up with these real-time games for me. I think it's crucial. And this is something we're going to get into more in the design discussion. But every action you can do is very clear what action you can perform. And it's very clear at a quick glance. Everything is color-coded, as you said earlier, to the different character classes. They're all color-coded. Everything they can do is in their color. And I really do think anytime you're talking about a real-time game, this is a key element, and it's done really well here. Yeah, the only uh, slight caveat I'll give to that... And it has not bothered me or anyone I've played with, but I can see the problem is that uh, so many things are color dependent that there could be a colorblind issue. Now, they did give each of the heroes a unique icon and they included these uh, clear stickers you can apply to the pawns to remind someone who's colorblind which hero is which. But I actually haven't applied the stickers to my copy of the game and I've heard they're not the best quality and tend to kind of fall off a bit. So just a little caution if you're colorblind that uh, the game might be tough, especially with the time limit to actually play for you. Just so you know, they did magically adhere to your pawns, so your set is stickered. Oh, well, hopefully they stay on. (laughs) I guess that's the benefit of lending your game to somebody who's OCD about making sure that everything looks the way it should. I uh, put the (laughs) stickers on. That was almost the first thing I did. That's funny. Before even playing the first time. That's fine. So my number four is a pro, pretty much, although there's a little uh, note at the end. And that is that the game gives you a slow kind of tutorial style progression of rules. And they actually have it laid out in the rule book. Like, here's what you should do for your first game. For your second game, add this. For your third game, add that. For your fourth game, add this. I haven't walked my way quite to the highest level yet, although um, I'm pretty close to it. But I I like that. It makes it very simple to teach somebody the game. It makes it quick to, like, throw in with a very casual player, and then you can slowly work them up to the uh, 
the most challenging things. And no game takes more than maybe 12 or 15 minutes, I would say, max. So it's not going to be that crazy to play the game three or four times in a row. The only small negative to that, and this is one that's true of a lot of real-time games and we'll talk about later, it does mean that if you get used to playing with a certain group and you're playing at a really high level, you're going to have to potentially go back to like that level one simplest game with a new group, which might make the playing a bit boring for you for a while since you are used to playing with all these extra rules. But that's a pretty common problem in almost any game that has a you know sort of tiered difficulty structure. Yeah, well, tagging on to that, my number three is a good tutorial system. I really do like when games do this. Yes, there is that minor caveat that you might have to go back and play earlier sessions of the game, but I don't think it takes too much away. And as I'm going to keep alluding to, I do think this game's as much about communication as it is about how quickly and how efficiently you do things. So for me, even when you are starting over and doing an easier level, you still have to learn that communication with that new group of people. So I actually don't think it's a problem to decrease the difficulty, go down a little bit. And as what happened when you taught me, we skipped a couple steps, right? I mean, you don't have to go through every single tutorial. Two or three of them can be put together. There aren't adding that many rules each time you're doing a new step. So I do think it is something you could jump through pretty quickly as you're getting a group up to speed. Yeah, that's a great point. Speaking of communication, my number three is this choice of limiting communication. And this is a mixed one for me, probably leaning slightly toward the pro side. I do enjoy games like uh, Hanabi, for example, that Peter mentioned earlier, that have uh, limits and rules on communication in cooperative games and in real-time games because it eliminates the alpha player potential because you can't talk to each other as much as you want and you can't have somebody tell you what to do. So I like that. I also like the increased stress. The game is definitely more tense and more kind of wild to play because of the lack of communication. That being said, out of the four groups I've played it with, there was one where somebody was actively annoyed and even upset with the do something pawn and sort of feeling like people were getting frustrated with them for not understanding what they were supposed to be doing. So that that's where the sort of negative comes in, that it can be frustrating, it can put people off, it can make people actively angry with each other. So I would definitely consider that for the groups you might be playing with. And also, they do suggest for your first game that you allow open communication, but I think if your group needs it, just allow that as long as they need until they're really comfortable. Because where the pro lean comes is the game is awesome like really sings when you all know your role and you all know the game pretty well and you're just doing stuff like clockwork work without saying a single word without even using that do something pawn that's really cool when that happens especially like in a three or four or more player group but again there is the potential for some uh, negative feelings within that yeah and that's my number two as well it's limited communication i put and then the words right afterwards are can be frustrating And for me, it is frustrating. I wasn't with you in that game where you had the person get frustrated, but I can totally see why. And I get frustrated on both sides. I get frustrated when I'm asking somebody to do something and they're just not seeing it. And I also get frustrated when it's me who's not seeing what I'm supposed to do next. And so for me, the time pressure definitely adds to it. But as you mentioned earlier, and I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I've started doing because I'm 
also remember playing mostly with a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old, we have totally gotten rid of the communication rule. We talk through a lot of the game, and I think you're still having to be on the same page. Certainly makes the game a lot easier, but they're not getting frustrated. They're moving through it. I could tell my daughter was getting frustrated. We tried to use limited communication for a while, and it just got to the point where it's like, this isn't fun anymore. So we just took that out and started talking. And I'll be honest, even with limited communication, I was cheating all the time anyway. I guess it's just either my personality or whatever else. But I would take that pawn and I would tap it right next to the sand timer, like when the time was about to run out. Or I'd tap it where I wanted them to place that tile, you know, when it came up. So it was very hard for me to not say or do anything as other people were making choices. It's funny because in most of these games, I don't find myself to be an alpha player. But especially when playing with my kids, sometimes when I could see them getting frustrated and them getting disillusioned because they don't know what to do, it's just like, okay, let me help you with this decision here just to get the game back on a fun track. Because as we said in our Talking With Kids episodes, if they lose interest in the game because they're frustrated or whatever else, it's really hard to get them back in. So turns have to keep moving really quickly. And just for that sake, I have decided to do away with the communication rule, even though we're progressing through the tutorial and, you know, on to mission five at this point. Yeah. So just overall, take that rule with a grain of salt and make the game work for you. The game is still very fun, even with full communication. So don't feel like you're not playing the game as intended, I think, if you uh, talk a bit. And I'll be honest, for us, it's more fun to do it with communication, and there's still challenges to the game. We still come very close to losing all the time. So that's a good sign for the game. Definitely. So my number two, it's interesting that you've been sort of following me with things one up higher, so let's see if you do it again. My number two is the probably the most unique thing about the game, which is the division of actions and how some people can do things and other people can't. For me, this is mostly a pro and almost entirely a pro. And I find it very engaging and kind of just cool. When you are trying to move a pawn and you have two other people like actively helping you and you're each moving boop, 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 like each taking turns, moving the pawn one or two spaces in perfect uh, synchronicity. It's this really... It's kind of cool. Like it's it's this uh, sort of zen-like, communicative, amazing experience, and I really enjoy that. And something that's added in very early, I think it's the uh, the second or third tutorial setup, is that every time you flip the hourglass, you also trade your uh, action tiles to the left. So a nice thing is that you have to kind of adjust. You're not just moving left the entire game. You be switching the actions you're taking throughout the game. The slight negative is that sometimes you're not doing anything for a while. Like if everyone's focusing on, uh, you know, the red pawn and the red pawn has to go up left and right and your movement is down, you might just be sitting there kind of watching them move things for a little bit. I've never had a game where I was doing that, like doing nothing for more than maybe five or ten seconds, so it's not a big deal. But it is something to note. And I think... I haven't played with more than four players, but with five to eight players, which the game does support, you'll have people who double up movement, like maybe two people can move left. I have not tried that yet. I can imagine that being pretty chaotic. So I'm not sure if I would recommend having not played it, the game, with five to eight players, because I can see it being a little wacky. But with one through four players, there, there is a solo variant, by the way, that's totally different than the multiplayer game. With one through four players, I find the action uh, division pretty fun and engaging. 
Yeah, I didn't have that on my list, but it does go back to the number five for me. While it is cool when you're going back and forth, if it's going up and right for a while, and, and it tends to do that too. I mean, I know they put walls in to try to make it not that way, but if you're on the lower left of the map and you need to get to the upper right of the map, there's going to mostly be ups and rights in that. And so I know it balances a little bit with, well, I had to get to the lower left side, so I'm going down and left a lot. But as you said, when you flip over that timer, you pass your thing. So you could literally be left out of the action for quite a while. And you said you haven't seen it, but I have seen it, where there are people that are just sitting around for, I mean, it feels like minutes, but it's probably, you know, 15 seconds, obviously, as a lot of action's going on. But that was more of a con for me, even though I didn't have it exactly. That was part of the you don't control your own character. So I do think there are two sides to that, as you said. Sure. So my number one is... It feels more like a communication game than a speed game to me. Now, don't get me wrong, there's definitely a speed element, as we said. But, similar to a game like Kanabi, which I brought up earlier, I feel like you really need to get your communication down, and once you do, the time element doesn't seem like as big of a deal as figuring out a language for the game, right? If I need you to move this guy, maybe I... I mean, I have to have a way of signaling you that this is the next person we're going to do, even when we can't talk. And so I do feel like that that is part of the game, and even to me, a bigger aspect than the speed aspect. So when you play something like a five-minute dungeon, you're constantly just throwing cards down as fast as you can. Whereas in this game, you really don't have moments like that where you're just... I mean, yes, you may go back and forth and back and forth, and you know, you're both moving this pawn. And that's when you get in that flow... But I don't feel like I'm in that flow for most of the game. I feel like a lot of times it's like, let's figure out how to tell them that this is the thing I want them to do next. So that's my number one. For me, it feels a lot like more like a communication game and figuring out that language that you're going to use than a speed game, at least at the level of skill that I am right now. Yeah, I'm not sure I've felt... I mean, I, I do definitely see the huge importance of communication... For me, I wouldn't say that I don't feel the speed element. I would just say that it feels like a more thinky real-time game. Like you need to kind of consider things a bit more and and think through some choices a bit more. But yeah, I I never feel like I'm not running out of time. That's always a kind of an ever-present threat for me. And speaking of time, my number one, kind of similar to what I said about Escape two weeks ago. Well, not, not kind of, very similar. And I think that was my number one there too. So clearly I like this mechanic. My number one is the hourglass flipping. And in a way, I like it more than Escape, where you just have the drums and you have a time limit and then you have to get back, because the fact that it is actually an hourglass and you flip it and reverse where the sand is makes this automatically tense, because you can't just kind of run over there the second you find one of those hourglass tokens and flip it and get more time that way. You have to wait until time is almost out to get the full effect out of it. If you want to get like the full minutes that you're due, you have to wait until the last grain of sand is just about to fall. So it has an automatic kind of tension to it that I really enjoy. On top of that, sometimes we do have the chance to just leave a dude right next to it and they'll just kind of jump on it when uh, it's time to go. But in many of the games we've played, uh, we won't have found a new hourglass yet, and all the rest of them will be out of order, and we'll have to go find one, like, desperately searching for tiles. 
And uh, other times, you know, you're just moving all the four people around. You forget all about it and dashing back to get to it. And again, it's not just one person dashing back. All like two or three or four of you have to work together to get back to that hourglass. I just find it super fun, super engaging, really amps up the tension. So again, I'll kind of disagree. I feel the speed as an ever-present threat and the tension does not feel like it ever goes away in playing the game, for me at least. Yeah, so that covers it. I'm going to go first because I feel like I'm a little bit more negative on the game. I do like it. I'm glad it's in the collection. One thing we didn't mention is price. I think we got this one for $25 on Amazon. I think retail's 35 So for that price, I think you're getting a real good value here. I would not hesitate to loosen the communication rules if you do get frustrated. Know the people you're playing with going in. I would almost not even introduce the communication rules right away until you start harmonizing and really moving things well together. You know, it says, I think, after the first game, you're supposed to stop talking. And I can't imagine you figuring out a strategy by that point where you're going to be working together in an efficient enough way to beat the rest of the missions. And as in any tutorial, you don't want to get stuck in a tutorial, right? You don't want to be stuck and do the same mission over and over again. I don't think it's interesting enough for that. So the part we're enjoying right now is progressing through the tutorial and if that means loosening the communication rules i definitely think that is an important part of it so for me it's definitely a recommend at the price it's not my favorite game i'll be honest i actually think it falls between five minute dungeon and escape for me but you know i have enjoyed playing it yeah i'll I'll recommend as well and i am more positive towards it than peter i think It's probably at the top of the three we've reviewed so far, Five Minute Dungeon, Escape, and this. So just some cautions. Make sure your group will enjoy it. I actually have had the best games with my wife. So I find the two-player games sort of my ideal number because you each have more actions to take. So you're constantly involved and constantly working together. And it's also a little bit easier to succeed because you don't have as many people to kind of potentially break down communication. But I've had a ton of fun with uh, three and four players as well, and four players was more chaotic in an entertaining way. But again, that's also where I had somebody not enjoy the game. So again, just be cautious. If you think that this game might fall flat with your group, maybe try to play it before you buy it, that kind of thing. But it is certainly uh, cheap for the price, especially uh, on Amazon. Yeah, it's still $25. I'll also mention briefly that there is a solo variant where you have uh, a set of seven tiles that show all of the possible actions in the game, and you're supposed to flip through them with one hand, it is hard as anything to even get past like the most basic difficulty level. And it takes a lot of weird dexterity to quickly uh, flip through tiles with a single hand if you play the, uh, the game as the rules are written. I still enjoyed it, but it's such a different experience and such a kind of like challenging physical experience that I would say if you're going to buy this game just for the solo experience, I would warn you against it. I think it's much better in the two to four player game. I personally don't intend to play the solo game much again, if at all. It's cool that a real time game has a solo mode. I I can't think of any other ones that do except uh, maybe Space Alert. But it's it's not a great one. So yeah, for those solo players, I would, I would probably stay away from this one if that's the main way you intend to play it. But with multiplayer, I had a ton of fun. I, I think this game is really tense, really exciting, has more strategy going on than Escape or Five Minute Dungeon, which is kind of what drew me to it a bit more. So if you think your group will enjoy it, I'd say definitely give it a try, especially at this low price point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And to be clear, because I didn't say it, for me, I love Five Minute Dungeon above the other two. And it's because I don't have to turn my brain on. It is literally a let's go as fast as we can moment. And each progressing level just makes it go faster. So with this one, if you like a more thinky game, I think you'll like this one better. But for me, I like something that plays super fast, super quick, and everything is pretty straightforward. But hey, the lovely thing is that you can get both of them from Amazon right now for less than the cost of escape. <laughs> so nothing to stop you from trying both of them and trading one on if uh, you don't you don't love it. Although I will say, I'm going to sell you out here a little bit. You know how sometimes when you listen to a podcast and it's like, man, every game they talk about is so good. I'm going to go buy them. Well, Mike talked himself into buying Escape last time. Well, yeah, so this, this is funny. I, I wanted to mention this. Yeah, so after we talked about Escape, I was like, man, they have so many expansions for this that I haven't played. And, and I was looking on uh, Board Game Geek, and some of them, especially the Quest expansion, people were saying really vastly improves the game. And I already enjoyed Escape. So uh, I found uh, the last copy of the second big box ed- edition, which I think came out fairly recently from a Kickstarter that happened, I think, about a year ago. And uh, yeah, that should be coming in the mail tomorrow. And it was only like 60 something bucks for the big box edition, which is amazing compared to like, I think that's the same price as just the base game with no expansions uh, on Amazon. So, yeah, I I, <laughs> I still like, I think, Magic Maze better. And Magic Maze does, by the way, have an expansion that's out in Europe, but has not gotten a U.S. distribution yet. But I'm definitely excited when that comes over, because it looks like it adds a lot more uh, potential bells and whistles, again, if you have a group that's played the game enough to uh, be ready for them. Very cool. So, yeah, don't get mad at us for talking you into buying games anymore. We talk ourselves into buying games as well. <laughs> yeah, even though Peter already owns Escape, I had to have it too. Exactly. All right, so now I think it's time for our design discussion, and this week we're talking about real-time games. So, Mike, what's one thing you think is important when you're designing a real-time game? I'm going to be coming to this design discussion from the place where I enjoy real-time games, which are the thinkier, space-alert-style real-time games. So the first thing that I would suggest for people designing a real-time game is that there is a good amount of variety in what you're doing. Clearly, as a five-minute dungeon demonstrates, you can have a very bare-bones idea where you don't really add anything from game to game except amping up the speed or amping up the tension. And gosh, look at how many uh, card games like uh, Spit and those kind of things there exist where you know it's just a basic card game and you can play the same game over and over and over again. So clearly, variety is not always required. But for someone like me who wants to think through their real-time games, you need to have new stuff going on in games and things that really change it up. And I think Space Alert still does this the best because the different enemies that come out drastically change the, uh, the strategy you have to use to defeat them and the kind of things you're doing throughout the game. At the same time, I don't think you should have too much variety in what you, your characters, can do or the players are doing in the game because you do need to have, need to have a kind of simplicity of actions to allow the speed to take off and the people to do what they need to do. So five-minute dungeon, you're just playing cards. Magic Maze, you're mostly just moving the pawns with a few extra additions. And even when you add on the variety of like the extra challenges, your actions stay consistent. You don't add any new actions in the game. So I would say you want variety in the challenges you'll face uh, as much as you can fit in, but try to still keep the action simple. Yeah, and that was one of mine as well. You really do need to keep the rules very simple. This is something that is going to be prone to rules mistakes 
because people are moving at a fast pace. Nobody can help you if you do make a rules mistake. Although I will say that's probably a pro of Magic Maze because everyone is moving the same pawns. It's really hard to make a mistake in this game, but for most real-time games, especially ones where you're rolling dice as fast as you can, there are going to be times where you make mistakes. I mean, it happens most of those games. So that's the other thing I wanted to add into that is you need to consider rules mistakes and what to do when those rules mistakes happen for people. You know, consider, is it making the game easier? Is it making it harder? If they're going to make a mistake, what's it going to be? And what can I do as best as possible to prevent that or provide a rule for what do you do if you do make that mistake and you catch yourself? Now, it's a good point, and I think like 5-Minute Dungeon had the rule that a, a card played on the table is just a card played, don't worry about it, move on. So, yeah, you, you have to address it in some way, and I think probably being kinder to your players and not making too big of a deal of a mistake, kind of like something uh, Spirit Island did as well, is definitely the way to go, generally. Yep. Another one I'll say is, uh, this applies to Magic Maze, applies to Space Alert, applies to Escape to an extent, is... Consider your learning curve and how, as you add rules to the game, it might be more challenging for a new player to jump in. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a guided tutorial like Magic Maze has. I think it's a great thing to do. But when you do that, you suddenly make it much tougher to bring that game from new group to new group and still gain the full enjoyment out of it. Whereas something like 5-Minute Dungeon doesn't really have any extra rules as you play more, so you can just jump in with it over and over again. So it's sort of the, the contrast to the variety thing I was saying a moment ago. You do have to be aware that if you put in so much variety and so many extra rules and additions and expansions that you can add on, you're also potentially limiting the, the breadth of how many people you can play the game with. Space Alert is a great example of this. It is a tough game with a lot of moving pieces, so if I haven't played in a while, if I try to play with a new group, you have to do so many things to slow down the game, otherwise they just have no chance of survival. And if you want to play those yellow or red threats that are just so much more fun, but also so much harder to beat, you're not going to be able to do that unless you're playing the game solo. So consider your learning curve as you add variety in the game. There's not a right answer either way, but you might, I think, alienate a kind of more general gaming player base if you have a lot of things that get added uh, bit by bit, because then it'll be tough to uh, play with a new group. And this is a pro I'm going to give to Space Alert. They make it so that one person really can run that game. I'll be honest, I don't know that I could ever run a game of Space Alert. The players really just need to understand what they can do in that game. And as aliens get added to the board, as threats get added to the board, as long as there's one player who's knowledgeable about how to do that, Yes, it's important to understand what that threat's going to do, but that player running the game, as long as you make that role simple enough, then you can have somebody teach even more advanced rules as they go along. So that wasn't on my list, but I really do think that's a good one. If you can have a GM character who is also playing in the game, as long as you're making the player action simple, I think you can get away with a little bit more complexity there. But the next one on my list is something I've mentioned over and over for all these games is clear iconography. I can't tell you how far that goes in these kind of games. If you can look in quick real-time action and see, okay, I need this running man, or I need this sword icon, or I need the green guy to be here. If you can see that in real time, it really is going to make the learning curve much lower. 
and it is going to eliminate some of those mistakes that people would typically make playing the game. So if you can make that iconography as clear as possible, and I know as a designer that's not always in our control, but if you get samples back from your graphic designer and it's not clear, I think that is something to emphasize that you would want to get changed and want to be made more clear. I I do think it's so important in these real-time games. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, the next one I had, and this this goes back a bit again to uh, two weeks ago with our five-minute dungeon uh, report, is if possible, try to make your game as quick to set up and as quick to tear down as possible. Because these real-time games are generally not going to have a playtime beyond five or ten minutes, if your game takes five or ten minutes to set up and five or ten minutes to put away, or not even put away, but five or 10 minutes to get ready for your second play of the game because real-time games lend themselves so often to repeated plays in a row. Uh, That's really going to decrease the actual time spent playing the game. That's sort of an obvious thing to say, but it's also something to really consider. I think this is a greater danger with the card-based games like Five Minute Dungeon because you have to separate the cards out and you have to shuffle the cards and all of that adds time. Escape is pretty quick to uh, tear down and get another game going because you're just taking the tiles and the gems. Same thing with Magic Maze. You just knock off the out-of-order tokens, shuffle the tiles, you're ready to go. Space Alert takes a little bit longer, but that's a that's a longer real-time experience in general anyway. But yeah, so just be careful, especially if you're using cards, that it doesn't take so long to get the game going that you're spending as much, if not more, time setting up and taking down than you are actually playing. That's a good point, although I'm going to counter it a little bit here with what I'm about to say, especially when it comes to 5-Minute Dungeon, which is the game should come in short bursts, and it's funny because I did say at some points in Magic Maze I was frustrated because I wasn't getting to do anything for a while, but I do think it's important to not have somebody go for 30 straight minutes playing these games at a frantic pace. I think games that do it really well are games like Project Elite. You have two minutes of action followed by a pause, and then you go to a non-real-time portion of the game. The way this correlates to 5-Minute Dungeon is, I think it's nice if you could go back-to-back-to-back playing cards as fast as you can, the way that game makes you do it, I actually think that would be a detriment to the game and I would like it less. So even though, yes, it takes 5 or 10 minutes to clean up the game, I actually think that break is good for players. And so if you could design that in the game, clearly it's not a feature. It's clearly something they didn't intend to be a, a cleanup time for the game. But I do think in some ways it helps it. And I do think if you can design that into the game, that is a good thing to do. So you're giving your players a break every once in a while. So I I just have one more point to think about, and that is considering your components. And like Peter said, for the iconography, this is going to be often not in your control as a designer, but for publishers, hey, this is all about you. Since you are moving quickly, your components need to be of such a quality that they will not become damaged in the gameplay. Again, I think cards are going to be in more danger here than games with, like, wooden pawns and cardboard tiles like uh, Escape and Magic Maze. The dice quality is important also if it's a quick rolling game like Escape. Just consider, are these things going to last viciously quick play that might put them under a lot of strain? And also, are they pleasing to touch and interact with? Are they nice, like, smooth pawns? Seems like a small thing, but when you're, like, quickly doing stuff, that can be a nice little thing. Whereas in a slower kind of strategic game, well, I guess it matters there, too. So I don't know. Good components are certainly key in anything. But at least the durability is certainly more important in a real-time game than in a 
game where you can carefully arrange everything on your board. Absolutely. And we keep saying that this is a publisher thing where they need to make the components nice and they need to make the icons clear. But as a designer, what you can do and what we always try to do is make that prototype as close to the final product as possible. If you need a certain layout, a certain graphic design for a card structure, you make that yourself. And then they're going to look at it. They may change it around a little bit, but at least you give them a vision of what you think the thing should look like. So I do think If you want clear icons, make sure your prototype has clear icons when you give it to that publisher. So you don't have control over the final thing, but at least you can steer them in a direction. And it does matter because from what we've seen so far, they do kind of take a lot of your hints when it comes to graphic design and the way you're laying out the boards and where cards go and things like that. So my last one is these games are typically of a lighter nature. Something like 5-Minute Dungeon plays really fast. Something like Magic Maze plays really fast. Because of that, they are good for kids. Because kids like to do things really fast. They don't get bored because there's not a lot of downtime. So I would consider the theme when you're designing these games and make it something more light and accessible if you can. If you're playing that 5 or 10-minute real-time game, something that's going to be pleasing for kids, something that kids are actually going to be good at, the way they can for Magic Maze and 5-Minute Dungeon and Escape, I think the theme not putting grotesque artwork, things like that. I think Magic Maze and 5-Minute Dungeon do a real good job of making very cartoony artwork, very pleasing to the eye, and something that when people walk by the table, they're watching you do things fast and frantically, but if they stop and get caught by that cartoony artwork or whatever else, that's going to draw people into wanting to watch your game as well. So I do think, for many reasons, you want to keep your theme as light and accessible as possible if your gameplay is light and accessible. All right, there are some tips for any of you thinking about designing a real-time game. Yeah, so thanks for joining us again on Co-Opcast, and we'll see you again in two weeks. And I think we're going to take a bit of a break from the real-time game, so we'll try something that's a little bit slower paced for our next review. Maybe even a little spooky. Ooh, I like it. All right, everyone, have a great two weeks, and we'll catch you again soon. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-Opcast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. That time it sounded like we were together. Yeah, the first time I'm like, it was like five seconds later. I'm like, why are you just clicking it now? <laughs> what in the world just happened there? I'm like uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. One, two, three, five. Or no, one, two, five. Three, sir, three. <laughs> yes. That's not important. I'm going to redo that again. <laughs> I feel like there's one more thing I didn't talk about. You can't talk? Bye-bye. Gotta go. <laughs> <laughs>